Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. So wherever you're listening today, whether in the car, on your daily walk or run, or just part of your daily inspiration time, I hope today we can learn something that will help you as you strive to reach your goals and fulfill your purpose. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about the most powerful trait you can possess in life that will allow you to genuinely change, lead, and influence others. On December 26, at the age of 21, Art Berg was soon to be married and was driving across the Nevada desert. He had just celebrated Christmas with his family in San Jose and was headed to spend the rest of the holidays with his fiancée, Dallas. They were to be married in five weeks' time and the upcoming days were sure to be filled with wedding details. Most of all, he was excited to enter into his new life. After eight hours of driving, Art turned the driving duties over to his friend John, climbed into the passenger seat, put on his seatbelt, and went to sleep. He was exhausted. One hour and a half later, 40 miles north of Las Vegas on I-15, Art suddenly woke up when he felt the car dramatically swerve. John had fallen asleep and lost control of the car. The little Volkswagen they were driving was headed directly into a cement barrier. On impact, the car flipped several times as it tumbled off the side of the road. And when the car came to a stop in a pile of twisted metal and broken glass, John looked over to the passenger seat to check on Art. But he wasn't there. So John pulled himself through a broken window and called out for Art. There was no answer. He just heard the wind blowing in the dark desert night. On his hands and knees, John groped through the thick darkness, calling Art's name. And after a few minutes, he heard some faint groaning. When he finally found Art, blood was streaming down Art's face, and John asked if he was okay. And Art said, I don't think so, and slipped into unconsciousness. What Art eventually learned was he had broken his neck at the fifth vertebrae from the top. Doctors had fused three vertebrae together, and the first thing the doctor said to Art when he woke up was, Art, you're a quadriplegic. What that meant was Art had no use of his legs. He had lost the use of his stomach muscles. He lost the use of his hands and most of his arms. He had use of some of his shoulder muscles, upper left arm muscles, and one of his three major chest muscles, but the doctor told him the facts. You will always need help getting dressed, to eat, to move from place to place. You will never drive, never work again, and like 93% of people in your condition, you will need constant support. You won't play sports, marry, or have children. A few days later, the next doctor spoke to Art. He told him he was going to put a halo on Art. A halo is a one-inch wide metal ring that encircles the head. Four three-inch screws hold in the halo by screwing the screws into the skull. After receiving the halo and facing his grim future, Art struggled to come to terms with what had happened to him. Why did this happen? How could he ever move forward paralyzed as he was? Now, I don't know about you, but I think all of us at some point in life feel a little bit paralyzed, sometimes by our habits or circumstances or past choices. And we may even say, why? Or how can I move forward from here? I know I felt that way at times. You know, sometimes life just isn't fair, and sometimes it's hard to see beyond 
our current situation. And if you felt that way, then we can take a lesson from Art. During the first few months, Art just kept asking why. He wanted to blame someone. He was in a deep emotional rut with no escape. Then he went to the wedding of a friend. His fiance Dallas and John were both there. During the ceremony, Art looked at Dallas and she at him, both thinking of their own marriage that was tragically interrupted, and they started to cry. Then something happened. Art looked at John, and John was weeping. Up until that point in time, Art had been so focused on himself that he had not really considered John's pain. Of course, John felt responsible. And the minute Art looked outside of himself, he found strength. He realized he'd been given a unique chance to help people in pain to know how to leave their own paralysis behind. What he found was his humility. In other words, he became willing, willing to accept his circumstances and willing to leave blame behind. He became willing to take responsibility for his life, despite what had happened to him. You see, humility is born of the willingness to accept where you are and to put others' interests ahead of your own. It doesn't make you weaker, but rather it empowers you to act. And this is what happened to Art that day. He decided no matter what, he would not let what happened to him define him. It was several years later when I met Art Berg. By that time, Art had married Dallas. They were the parents of two children. Art had set a world record as a quadriplegic by completing an ultra wheelchair marathon in record setting time. And he was a best selling author, successful business owner, and accomplished motivational speaker. While I knew Art, he traveled over 200,000 miles a year as a motivational speaker. And he often traveled alone. He was self sufficient, he could feed himself and drive a car. When we would pick him up at the airport, he would usually have someone from the flight still talking to him. People loved being around him. His courage was contagious. But of all the qualities I learned from Art, it was his humility that stood out. Despite his accomplishments, he was always willing to listen, to give, and to help. He was so gracious. Now, before his death from an adverse reaction to medication, Art was awarded the Consummate Professional Speaker of the Year Award and the International Humanitarian of the Year Award. Art left a legacy of humility and faith. It's not what happens to us. It's what we do with what happens to us that matters. Humility is a rare skill, isn't it, that is rarely taught or discussed. Yet, it is, in my mind, the most essential characteristic to change and effective leadership. It is also the most needed in our day and age. Muhammad Ali was often known to say, I am the greatest. He seemed to lack no confidence and prided himself on his abilities. As the story goes, one day a plane carrying a number of passengers, including Muhammad Ali, was going through some rough turbulence. The captain turned the seatbelt sign on, made an announcement to the passengers to put on their seatbelts, and asked the flight attendants to ensure all were buckled in. Ali, however, ignored the request. One of the flight attendants came and asked him to buckle his seatbelt, to which Ali replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt, to which the flight attendant responded, Superman don't need no plane. Humility is not an easy virtue to acquire or practice. 
And it's even more difficult to apply personally in all of life's situations. And it's easy, you know, to see how others may need humility rather than focus on our own need to be humble. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, humility is the first of the virtues for other people. At one point in his life, Benjamin Franklin set out to practice and acquire moral virtues. He wrote, It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection, as I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong. I did not see why I might not always do one and avoid the other. Now, Franklin made a list of 12 areas of attitude and action that needed improvement, and the 27-year-old Philadelphian asked a friend to look over his list. His friend would later tell Franklin something that awakened the need for a 13th virtue. Franklin wrote in his autobiography that his friend kindly informed me that I was generally thought proud, that my pride showed itself frequently in conversation. So, humility became the 13th virtue in Franklin's project. Often, we define pride as a feeling of pleasure from one's own achievements, but that definition is simply too narrow. Pride can best be described by thinking of a balanced scale that consists of two plates hanging at equal distance from a fulcrum. On one plate, we place our will, and on the other plate, our willingness. Pride occurs when our will outweighs our willingness to learn, to help others, and to put aside our selfish will in life. You see, when our willingness outweighs our will, now we start to be humble. The opposite of pride is humility. Pride is your greatest enemy, humility your greatest friend. As C.S. Lewis wrote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So with all of this talk of virtues of humility, how do we acquire it? How do we acquire humility? Well, some of us have at times been forced to be humble. And that reminds me of the story of the parrot. A young man named Sam received a parrot as a gift, and the parrot had a bad attitude and an even worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. Sam tried and tried to change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words, playing soft music, and anything else that he could think up to clean up the bird's vocabulary. Finally, Sam was fed up, and he yelled at the parrot, and the parrot yelled back, and Sam shook the parrot, and the parrot got even angrier and even ruder. In desperation, Sam threw up his hands, grabbed the bird, and put him in the freezer. For a few minutes, the parrot squawked and kicked and screamed. Then suddenly, there was total quiet. Not a peep was heard for over a minute. Fearing that he'd hurt the parrot, Sam quickly opened the freezer door. The parrot calmly stepped out into Sam's outstretched arms and said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. Sam was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude, and he was about to ask the parrot what made such a dramatic change in his behavior when the bird asked a question. May I ask what the turkey did? Just as the parrot was humbled by seeing the dead turkey in the freezer, we are often humbled by consequences that come our way as a result of our arrogance or focus on our own selfish desires or mood or need for accolades. Wouldn't life be better if instead of being forced to be humble and willing, we were always humble and willing? 
it's so much easier to work with those people that choose to be that way. So how do you find humility? Simple answer, we change our view. We adopt a new view of ourselves relative to others. We realize that whenever we're placed in a position of teacher or parent or leader, we step into that new view. And that new view is you are the servant. You are the least important, not most important. You see, when you adopt a servant mindset, you stop worrying about your own interests and what others think of you. Eleanor Roosevelt said, you wouldn't worry so much about what others think of you if you realized how seldom they do. This mindset, once you acquire it, is an amazing gift. You would think that when you choose to see yourself as less than, others would take advantage of you, right? But not so. This view frees them up to be vulnerable and open with you, and the authenticity of it garners respect. But in my experience, opening your eyes and changing your view of your position compared to others is the most powerful thing you can do. The question is, do you genuinely believe the person in front of you, regardless of their education, wealth, age, race, or any other characteristic, is of more or at least equal value to you. When you see others in this way, everything changes in your life. You see, humility is not about self-deprecating behavior or an attitude of lesser capability or low self-esteem. Instead, it's about the esteem with which you regard others. Great leadership behavior flows naturally from that type of esteem. In my years as a college professor, students taught me more than I ever taught them. In my years as a company president and now CEO, my team teaches me more than I will teach them. When you open up to this view, you open up yourself to learn and be edified. Years ago, Clayton Christensen wrote a book with a remarkable title. The title was, How Will You Measure Your Life? In his opening chapter, he describes the lives of his classmates at Harvard University as he observes them at several subsequent class reunions. Among his classmates were executives at McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, and many Fortune 500 companies. And he notes that many of his classmates were unhappy, and their lives didn't turn out like they wanted despite their education and success. And this caused him to think about the measures we use to measure life. He noted that for people who achieve or rise in a hierarchical sense within an organization and get a title or acquire wealth, we think often their lives as better or of more value. But that's because we choose to measure things that way. But what if, in the end, when we are measured against things that really matter, that, that hierarchical regard is not the yardstick or measure used? And what if today we chose to measure life differently? Well, Christensen goes on to suggest that God will evaluate us personally on what we did with the circumstances in which we were placed and how we helped others who were placed in those circumstances with us. In other words, our real job, our real measure of success is how did we serve in our circumstance? When I learned this lesson from Clayton, everything changed in my mind and view. You mean to tell me that my life will be measured by how I help people who are in my current circumstance? 
That means in this job, I will be measured by how they grow or prospered or became better. Soon after learning this, my teaching was different. My leadership, my parenting, everything was a little different. I had more time for others. You see, my yardstick for success changed. And something else powerful happened. When my circumstances changed, whether good or bad, I didn't worry that my title changed or I led a larger or smaller organization. I simply looked around for who I was supposed to help in that circumstance. Leadership is one of the most noble professions if practiced well. No other role except for parenting, which is leadership, can teach you more about you than real leadership. But so many of us fail in that role because we think leadership is about us. And the truth is, it is nothing about us. It is everything about those we lead. This change in view that your life will be measured by how you serve others in your current circumstance is humility at its best. You see, your circumstances can change. Even the people you serve can change. But your measuring stick does not. And this makes change easier because you're not focused on yourself. You're focused on others. Recently, a new study published in the Journal of Positive Psychology shared results from several studies on humility. The first, a large group of students were tested using a large survey to determine which students scored higher on characteristics of humility. Then the same group of students were shown a campus radio broadcast, which included a story about a woman whose parents and sister had died in a car crash and was having real difficulty in college. After the broadcast, a sign-up sheet was given to ask for volunteers to help her. Almost all of those who scored high on humility signed up to help. Very few of those who scored low on the humility scale signed up. Humble people value other people in real and authentic ways. In the same Time article, another study of 1,000 workers found that organizations with humble leaders had more engaged employees and less voluntary turnover. The reason they had these kind of results with people is truly humble people want to serve. The same view works in parenting. You see, when we see our children as having immense potential, able to teach us, and of immense value to God and the world, we treat them differently. When we see ourselves accurately as still learning and growing and of potentially lesser value than them, we open ourselves to growth and learning. We put on the power of humility. I believe when you put on the power of humility, you also put on the power to influence people, to find your own happiness, and in a strange way, in the end, you're more successful at your business, your family, and other endeavors in life. I have, we all have, worked for people who approach business measuring success by their own achievements, their own title or promotions, or how many accolades come their way. I've worked for people who can only measure their success if they feel satisfied with the attention they garner or if their own moods are met. They are never happy. They run to and fro trying to find happiness, but it eludes them and they think life will measure them according to their title or wealth when in fact it won't. Let me give you a simple example. Years ago, I worked with a remarkable woman named Suzanne. She had worked for years as a television reporter, trying to climb the ladder and focused on her promotion as a measure 
of her success. Suzanne and her husband had tried for years to have children, yet God hadn't blessed them with children. They'd visited doctors, been tested, and tried every available treatment, yet they couldn't. They applied for adoption, but no children were available for adoption. And during her 14-year career as a reporter, she had covered most of the major crime stories and had established relationships with police officers in the area. One morning, she received a call from a police officer giving her a tip that a man who had been digging through a dumpster looking for aluminum cans had discovered the dead body of an abandoned baby. Suzanne hurried to the crime scene, and she watched as the detectives climbed into the dumpster and began their investigation. As she watched, she was despondent and angry. What a waste. What I would have given to have that child, she thought to herself. How could something like this happen? She watched with tears in her eyes as the detectives lifted the tiny body from the alley dumpster into the van and drove away. She stated in her news report later that day that the police soon located the teenage girl who hid her pregnancy from her family and delivered the baby in her bathtub before abandoning it in the alley dumpster. Suzanne later interviewed the father of this teenage mother. Now, he told Suzanne that he learned about a safe haven law in other states. The law allows mothers to leave children at designated safe havens like hospitals or fire stations without the fear of prosecution. And he felt that if the law had been in place in their state, his daughter would have not abandoned her baby in a dumpster and the baby would be alive today. Suzanne said, I knew right then I had a mission and it was personal. And she went to work. She contacted her state senator and began to lobby for a safe haven act. She wrote letters, made phone calls, and brought the issue to light. And because of her determination and hard work, the law was passed the following year. At the signing of the bill into law, Suzanne was covering the story. And when the governor signed the bill, he called Suzanne to the front of the room to recognize her, and he gave her the pen he used to sign the bill into law. But the story doesn't end there. Suzanne and her husband continued to try to become pregnant with no success, and they waited without success for a baby to adopt. Then one day, Suzanne was talking to her sister and told her she felt something was going to happen soon, that God had a plan for a baby to come into her life. Then, not soon thereafter, the phone rang, and a caseworker for the Department of Welfare told her about an abandoned baby that was left at the hospital the previous day under the protection of the safe haven law. She told Suzanne that her name was chosen from a list of potential parents who were trying to adopt, and if they wanted the baby girl, they could adopt her. So the necessary paperwork was completed, and Lily, baby Lily, found her new home with Suzanne and her husband. Lily was the fifth safe haven baby in her state. And since then, dozens of abandoned babies have been legally and safely adopted because of the Safe Haven Act. Now, when Suzanne measures her life, it won't likely be the roles that she had in front of the camera. It won't be the attention that she garnered. It won't be based on her achieving a news anchor position, but rather the work she did on behalf of the children who were placed in the circumstances of her life. It will be an important measure of her life. Now, if Suzanne wasn't humble at the time, meaning if she was consumed in her own circumstance of, why can't I have a baby? She could have reported on this story and returned to her life focused only on herself and her challenges, but she didn't. 
She could have been consumed with her news career and how often she was receiving viewer accolades, but she wasn't. You see, humble people do things differently because they're focused on how they can help others. When you decide to serve in your circumstance, it doesn't matter if circumstances change. You see, for some people, if circumstances change, they get stressed and depressed, and especially if their title or notoriety changes, right? But not for humble people. They serve in any circumstance, and a change of circumstance is just a new opportunity to serve and to measure up in life. So if you're not very good at helping people in your current circumstance, let's do a simple exercise. Are you ready? Okay. Think about and describe a circumstance in your life. Maybe you've started a new business and there are a few people in the business who need your help, or maybe your family circumstances such that those people in your life at this time need your selfless service. Now, visually place yourself in the position of least among that group and the servant in that group and ask, who could you serve and how could you serve? You don't have to do big things. Maybe you're just a source of encouragement and positivity. Maybe you serve by your example. Maybe you just do small things to make their life better. But when you genuinely change your view and believe that even the lowliest person has immense eternal worth and your position relative to them is that of servant, being a humble leader comes naturally. Real authenticity will enter into your relationships and you'll find greater happiness and more peace and best of all friends. Can't you imagine serving in your current circumstance? As you live this type of humble life, measuring who you are and what you do by those you help in your current circumstance, you will slowly forget yourself. The things that used to cause anxiety and stress will lessen. And I believe you will find more success in your business, in your family life, and in your own growth when you find humility. And remember, your circumstances don't have to be remarkable. One morning in August 2014 at the drive through window of a Starbucks in St. Petersburg, Florida, a customer paid for her order and then picked up the tab for the stranger in the car behind her in line. Then that customer paid the bill for the following customer in line, and so on, for the next 330 customers. In a three-hour sequence of spontaneous generosity, this happened. Just look around, right? Your circumstances don't have to be remarkable. Just look around and serve. Now, you may be asking the question, McKay, I thought that we were talking about humility. Why haven't you talked about the steps of how to acquire it or the lessons describing it? Why? Because the most important thing you can do to be a humble leader is to change your view of your position relative to others, particularly others placed in your current life's circumstance. As I end, let me tell you this. You have within you the capacity to be humble to forget yourself, and to measure your life in right and true ways. And I believe you have been placed in the circumstances in which you have been placed to do great and noble good. And you don't have to do some great thing. Just keep your view of your real, authentic position and serve in small ways. You will change your life, and in the end, you will measure up. Remember Art Berg. He found himself in his life's purpose when he forgot himself and found humility. 
Humility begins with how you view yourself relative to others. And remember, the measure of life is not title or attention, but your willingness to serve in your circumstance. Thanks for being here today. And we'll talk about the next steps to opening your eyes in our next podcast. I look forward to being with you again soon.